Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's my pleasure to have Martin Stevens, who is the founder of the Pipeline Doctors and he's a whinging pom based in Sydney. Martin, hello. Hello indeed, yes. I can whinge for England. It's absolutely true, Marcus. Well, it is a national sport. It is a national sport. So could you give a 90-second background on your history, please? 100%. I spent my 20s in a US dollar pit in the city of London trading billions of dollars, which was great fun, don't get me wrong, but didn't really prepare me for life outside the city. Got made redundant, accidentally, as all good salespeople do, landed in sales. I happened to land at Mirror Group newspapers just at the time of Royal Britannia. Piers Morgan was our editor. Um, We were fighting the sun. It was good fun, really good fun. And that set me up into a life of um, advertising sales which I thought was going to be an entire life of advertising sales until um, I met a partner who was then whisked over to Australia to come and run a magazine company. And she insisted that I came with her as her plus one or the handbag holder. So all of a sudden, I found myself in Australia thinking, okay, what do I do now? Turns out I wasn't very good at surfing. So uh, I thought I'd better go and get a job. And ended up working for, well, the Australians will appreciate this, New Idea and That's Life magazine. Very female-dominated magazines, so trying to, I think, sell space in those magazines was a good education into the softer skills that are required in this country compared to the really brutal, hard-nosed, red-top newspaper negotiations I was more used to. Went from there to Fairfax and eventually decided, well, this selling malarkey is all really well and good, but I fancy managing, really, now that I've done the selling. So Julie went into management and spent a fair few years doing that in newspapers, moved to business intelligence company, went to Fairfax, um, sold space on the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age down in Melbourne, but eventually decided selling's all very well. Um, It's about time I started managing people. So got promoted into a management role within a couple of years, decided that I'd uh, get out of media sales, went into a national sales manager's role, managing a nice big team of 30 plus people in a business intelligence called Cordell. Fantastic company. Learned so much about life before eventually going for the CEO's job and uh, not getting it. And the next day being cut by the CEO who did get it. <laughs> it's a familiar story to anyone that's tried to do that. So I found myself out on my ass, suddenly made redundant and thinking, what do I do now? And look, to be honest, I went to a startup. It was an utter disaster. I was a disaster. It was a disaster. First time I'd failed in my life. And then really by accident got into lead generation and the wonderful world of SDRs and uh, haven't really looked back since. I got to a point, to be fair, where I was cold calling and decided I should really be doing this myself. And I think a lot of people get to a stage in their life when they're getting towards their 50s where they're probably a little bit sick of working for the man and decide they can do it themselves. Three years ago, I did exactly that and set up my own company, which was Pipeline Doctors. And here we are today. So what was the most exciting thing about the move into being your own boss? To be honest, it wasn't as much excitement as scary because the scary thing was the lack of a monthly salary. I had a nice big mortgage, two nice big mortgages to pay. And I think trying to convince my wife was quite scary that this was a good idea. That was the first scary one. Then actually realizing at the end of month one that you are, you know, you do not have a salary coming in. So I'll be honest, it wasn't so much excitement 
my overriding emotion at the time was I was pretty scared about it, but knew I had to do it because I just didn't like taking orders from people and knew that I was actually pretty good at what I was doing and I seemed to be earning a lot of money for somebody else. And I thought, well, you know, <laughs> I should be earning this money for myself. The lucky thing, lucky, don't know, back yourself, I can build pipeline. That's what I was doing. So, you know, if you can't pick up the phone and build pipeline as a new business owner, I feel quite sorry for you. Fortunately, that's what I could do and can do and still do. So within, you know, probably two months, I had a couple of clients. I was up, I was running. And I literally, you know, I haven't borrowed any money. I haven't needed to. It's always been in the black, which has been lovely. Well, I want to pick up on a point here. If you're setting up in business for yourself, you've just bought a sales job. And if you can't prospect, you're toast. So if you can't find a way to get yourself in front of and winning new clients, uh, then you're in trouble. So whatever, whatever anyone ever tells you, being a great technician is fine and dandy, but uh, unless you can sell, you will struggle. And if you believe in a higher <laughs> power, there's a celestial joke that they play on you which is that they give you just enough business to stop you from going back to a proper job. And then you win the piece of business and you focus on servicing that business and you let your pipeline dry up. And this is a huge mistake. So Martin, tell me this, why do people let themselves get into this feast and famine cycle? I think the excuse that I hear from most country managers and um, CEOs that I deal with is time. They simply haven't got the time to pipeline. And that's the excuse. There's a reason behind the reason, mostly phone fright. They believe that they're an interruption. They don't like doing it. They would much rather be seen to be the country manager, the CEO. And actually, they feel almost demeaning themselves having to pick up the phone to a complete stranger and strike a conversation. The excuse behind the excuse, because there's always a reason behind a reason, but the reason I get told time and time again is, oh, we just haven't got the time. And as you know, yeah. (laughs) Okay. If you haven't got the time, guess what? You're going to have an awful lot of time to consider that when you haven't got a job anymore, is my absolute view. So what are the four most common questions you get asked about prospecting by phone? (laughs) number one is about 98% of it. How did you get my number? By far the biggest question. Uh, Because I refuse to go through landlines anymore. It's just an utter waste of time. Everyone talks ad infinitum about gatekeepers. Why would you bother with a gatekeeper? Modern technology has allowed us to get around every gatekeeper. So unless I find somebody's uh, direct cell phone number, mobile phone number, whatever you guys call it, I simply won't call them. So the biggest question by far is once I've got hold of somebody on their mobile phone is, how did you get my number? So how do you get their number? Oh, so (laughs) Big Brother is most certainly watching you. So these are my secrets that I don't make overly secret. I started out with a company called Lusha, Lusha, L-U-S-H-A. They were initially brilliant because they were the first on the scene that I found out about. More recently, I've come across Signal Hire, brilliant. And even more recently, a mob called Seamless AI, who were just... How do you spell that? Seamless, S-E-A-M-L-E-S-S dot A-I. They are really quite impressive, I have to say. Who... Can I talk about people I don't like? 
God, I'm a grumpy old man. I'm allowed to talk about this. You might want to um, edit this out. Do not go with Zoom Info. They are massively overrated. They're hugely expensive. Avoid these guys like the plague. I don't know whether you're going to be allowed to keep that in, but go elsewhere. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's an opinion. You're allowed to have an opinion. I'm allowed um, to and it. if it's valid, it's valid. So well, in my research, questions? it's certainly valid. What other questions are you asked? So the other obvious ones are, I'm obviously English. I'm talking to Australian people. So how long have you been in Australia comes up more than you might imagine. I'm quite talkative at the beginning, I think it's fair to say. So I do believe in breaking the ice to a degree. So the fact that I'm English and cold calling somebody comes up. So, you know, how long have you been in Australia? That's certainly one that comes up. What about more specifically about the challenges relating to cold calling by phone, the efficacy of it, those kind of things? I think I do get, you know, why are you still cold calling? And an awful lot of people say I haven't been cold called in a very, very long time, which does also surprise me. So why do I cold call? Because I believe in conversations and I've got sick to death of using emails. I do use the occasional email, but it's highly personalized. I call it a basho email. Don't ask me what B-A-S-H-O actually stands for. It's just hugely personalized email that talks about the point or the problem we might be able to solve or the outcome somebody wants. But basho emails take far longer than a phone call will ever take. So I will only ever write a basho email as an absolute last resort. To me, it's not like I'm calling half the world here. I always focus on a very tight ICP. I have tiers of ICP. I explain to people how you should segment your target market into dream accounts. That's often what people give me to try and break into. But you have tier one accounts, tier two, tier three, and you need to segment your target market into those three segments. And you you have a go-to-market strategy that's different for all three. So when you have mismatched, wrong title, right company, you're not going to cold call those people. You know, that probably is a sequential email just to get some sort of curiosity. There's an awful lot of those. But when you get the right title, right company, that's probably worth an actual call if you make that a niche. And again, you know, this is all part of segmenting the ICP so that you haven't got something that's bigger than Ben-Hur. You've got to bear in mind, Marcus, that I am in Australia as well. So it's not like we have a Fortune 500 to go at. We have an ASX 100 to go at. You know, I probably called most of the senior decision makers already. They probably do know me. To a degree, I think I don't want to piss people off by giving them a semi-personalized sequential email. I would much rather try and have a genuine conversation with them. So that's why I use the phone. And I do get that a lot. Why do you cold call? I guess one of the others, I don't, I'm not answering your questions very well here, but I'll go back to your original one, you know, one of the big four questions. And I get asked, once I get in front of a potential client and they start understanding why I use the phone and why the technology allows me to make it much more efficient than it used to be, you know, you don't have to deal with gatekeepers, get straight through to people, et cetera. LinkedIn Sales Navigator allows you to target the exact people you're pretty sure are going to be the type of mobilizer or decision maker you need. You know, this is all technology allows us to do this better than it ever did. So we should just utilize it if you've got the balls to make a phone call in the first place. The next one, once I've explained all this, do you use a script? And I can't tell you how many people think I should or I do use a script. 
And I tell everyone, uh, I never script it. It's a structure, an absolute set structure, no two ways about it. And that framework. structure never... Yeah, yeah, structure, framework, absolutely. That, that never changes. But do I use a script? No, I don't. Because I'm not an actor. Actors make scripts come to life. Do you know what? I'm not an actor. Well, the, um, so the problem I can't. with scripts is that the other person doesn't have their half of the script. Good point. That's the reason why you, don't, you shouldn't ever use a script. Because if they go off script, you're fucked. Yeah, look, I've never heard it put like that, but you're so right. Yeah, you're absolutely so right. The moment they go off script, you're like, well, well hold on, where do I go now? But if you control the actual conversation, and if you, the only way you can really control the conversation, yes, you ask questions, you know, that's a given, but the only way you can genuinely control a cold call is to, to know exactly where you are in the structure at any given time. And if you keep on repeating that same structure, you're so familiar with it, People almost can't get you off, off course. You just know where you are. You know where to take them next. But that comes with oh, <laughs> a colossal amount of repetition. But, you know, you get better and better at it. To build on that point, the mistake I think a lot of people make is they fall into the trap of thinking that old technology doesn't work. It does work if you do it well. If you're crap at it, it doesn't work. If you're timid, it doesn't work. If you don't believe you have the right to make those calls, it doesn't work. Because conceptually, if you don't see yourself as your buyer's equal, if you don't see yourself as making an important call that is going to be important to them, then you will find yourself on your back foot. And the, the difference between people who are effective and successful at prospecting by phone and those who aren't is first of all, the people who are successful do it and they do it consistently and regularly. And they accept that rejection is part and parcel of the process. They don't take it personally. But when they're making the call, when I make a call to somebody, I know that this is probably the most important call they will ever receive in their entire career. And that's my fundamental belief. Because the work that I do is important, it's meaningful, it's life-changing. Now, if you're peddling a commodity that you don't have any belief in, then I suspect it's really hard graft. But again, if you are there with the intention of establishing, can I help? And if I can help, am I the right person to help? Then you have every right. In fact, you have a duty, a responsibility to make those calls. Uh, 100%. Look, Marcus, I'm not going to lie. There are clients I have that do things that don't really float my boat. Um, They don't float my boat, but it's up to me to find the person whose boat is floated by that that particular thing. So there are times when I am absolutely guilty of going, oh my God, do I really have to sell this HR software? I'm not sure it's going to change anyone's world. But do you know what? It will change somebody's world. It will really help somebody if you find somebody that wants a particular outcome that my client can achieve and has achieved for other people. They need to be in a bit of a hole and it's up to me to identify what hole they're in and whether they actually want to go on this journey to an outcome that my client... So it might not float my boat. And people say to me, oh, how can you work for so many different clients if you're not passionate about them? I, I, well, to me, it's actually not that hard. I might not be that passionate about it. I might not want this service. But you know what? I do believe that this pe- these people can create an outcome that somebody out there desperately wants. That's my job, to find that person. 
So I would agree. I prefer to be passionate about what I'm selling. Um, but my considered opinion these days, now that I literally go through all five days of the week selling different products, is I know somebody will hugely benefit from whatever I'm selling. It's my role, my job to find that person that is going to benefit from this product. Can I pick up on something? Yeah. You say that person. In my experience, it's almost never a person. There's normally a committee. (laughs) And one thing that I see many salespeople make a huge fundamental error in is that they only have one, maybe two points of contact. Almost without exception, in companies under 200 people, you've got three to four decision makers or influencers. In companies of over 1,000 people, you've got six to seven influencers minimum. So when you're prospecting on behalf of your clients, are you simply getting an entree into one point of contact? Or are you giving them that kind of uh, that account coverage to help them engage across the board? So there's two very distinct sort of clients. If I'm, going, if I'm dealing with an SME or any company that wants to target SMEs, to be brutally honest, it's owner or CEO. These are typically under 20 people in there. And that's who they sell right. to. Then you really do have to go for the owner or the CEO. Yes, you might get referred down, but you've got to start at the top. Now, I would a critical be... point. Call high because it's much easier to come back oh, uh, my God. from being referred down if you establish a golden shunt, which we can talk about in a minute. But it's nigh on impossible to claw your way up from some operator or someone who has a gatekeeper role, like an engineer or a manager, because they're very protective and scared to push things up the chain of command. However, there is another sort of client, and I'm just about to contradict you here, because there are other clients that I deal with who clearly want to sell to enterprise. And of course, I'm absolutely aware that you should start at the top. But to start at the top with dream accounts is a little bit different. So I've got two openings, to be brutally honest. I'm giving away my secrets here. But to small, medium enterprises, my opening is, this is a cold call, do you want to slam the phone down? I don't do too much research. I've got to be honest, I just don't. I nick that from Benjamin Dennehy. It works an absolute dream. If you've got big balls, start with that. It cuts out an enormous amount of research time. You just don't need that research time because it, it starts more conversations, that opening, than any other I've ever used in my life. However, you do get the phone put down on you probably twice a day. And you know what? That's absolutely cool. Do you ever phone back and say, we got cut off? No, I haven't. <laughs> that, that's no, I should do. I trained Benjamin. And um, maybe that's a secret he didn't share. But if you phone back and you say, Martin, I'm sorry, we seem to have got cut off, often people will just laugh. Now, many of them will slam the phone down on you again. Yeah. If you've got got their mobile number, then call them again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't. No, that's a trick. No, good one. I should start doing that. I'll have fun with it, even if they don't. Well, you Um, should be having fun. If you're making cold calls, it can be a moralizing job. So phone back and have a bit of a laugh. Having said that, for the other sort of clients that hire me, they do want to go after enterprise. I'm still a believer in going up the top, but I don't tend to open with that, this is a cold call, do you want to slam the phone down? With that, I tend to open ideally with the words that somebody has used in their annual report, in an interview, in something that I can relate back to an outcome, a problem. 
So that's when I've got dream accounts. That's I really can't afford to have the CEO slam the phone down on me. It takes a lot more research. That's why I use people in the Philippines to come up with this. I've trained them how to do it. Just research time that I don't really want to spend. But they've now got really good at understanding exactly what I want. So opening with, so there's no, hi, Marcus. It's just, Marcus, you said this. And as long as it's their words, and you can relate, there is not a person on this planet that doesn't love hearing their own words. And if you can actually make that relevant to something that actually I'm really interested in this, oh my God, you're talking to a CEO, you're buttering them up. It, that works better than any, uh, this is a cold call, do you want to hang up? But it takes time and it takes research. The other way of getting that, and this is my point about calling low, is if you can't find that anywhere in an annual report or you can't make it relevant to an outcome that you produce, call low. Salespeople are often a very good point to start calling so that you can start understanding because they want to talk. So call the salespeople. They're nice and low down. Start asking them about what's going on, what you want to ask them about. Get some information. And if you can't answer, start with, Marcus, you said this. Marcus, you might be interested to know that a member of your staff said, it's not quite the same and it's a bit confrontational, but you know what? It ain't half bad. So, you know, that's when I do call low. And I will call low. And, and that makes a lot of sense because you don't want to be doing primary research with a CXO. The CXO's time is extremely valuable. You know, if, if they're running a, a billion-dollar P&L, then their time is worth $400,000 a day. Sorry, $40,000 a day, which means that every hour is worth five grand. Every minute is worth hundreds of dollars. So you don't want to waste their time. In fact, no, I'm, I'm wrong. It's 400000 isn't it? A billion. Their time is bloody expensive and you have no right to waste it. So oh. you need to get straight to the point with something that will grab their attention. Oh, and and you have done your research oh. before you get to them because, you know, seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. And uh, KPMG released a study last year that said only six minutes in every hour in front of CXOs did a salesperson deliver any value. Now, if you're wasting their time, you're not going to get invited back. And that door is firmly closed forever. Why does that happen? Because you have salespeople that wander in with slightly too close-fitting blue suits, brown shoes. They ask the same fucking rubbish, bullshit questions that they should have done the research to open with because they've heard when they got trained that you start with the big funnel questions and go down... Oh my God, why does a CXO want to answer questions that you could have looked up on the internet, that you could have asked some? No, no, that's not what a CXO wants. No wonder these people don't get a second meeting. And they believe the way to get a first meeting, by the way, is to, hi, Mr. CXO, it's Martin from Wank Wank. Here's my value proposition. Let me tell, why do I want to fucking know about your value? Sorry, I'm sorry. Um, no, 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 that's that right. Uh, but, but, I understand why you're impassioned by it, because it is an absolute travesty that salespeople still do this. But they, so they have many of them do. People's time that way. Uh, what's interesting is CSO Insights did a research study a couple of years ago, and 85% of CXOs hate receiving cold calls. Uh, 82% love receiving good cold calls. Yeah, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Because salespeople um, can help them solve a problem. I interviewed a guy Steve Hall introduced me to, Zach Shamas. 
who for the last 30 years has been on the board as CFO, COO of uh, various companies like Standard & Poor's, uh, McGraw-Hill, Charles Schwab, Pan Am. And uh, what he said was, as a CXO, he really looks forward to meeting a salesperson. And in fact, he was more scared than they were because he was scared that they wouldn't be able to help him solve his problems. Now, when you're carrying you know, a, a nine, 10 figure PL, you really do have a lot of pressure on your shoulders. And if a salesperson can come along and offer you a fix to those problems, you're th- saying, thank God. But the problem is that so few of them make it past two minutes because they haven't done their research. They don't, haven't earned the right to stay. They haven't earned the right to transact. They haven't earned the right to loyalty. And they haven't earned the CXO's faith. Too much is at stake. And livelihoods, jobs, careers, share price, all of these things are at risk if they make the the wrong decision. So do your bloody research and don't waste their time. So we've got a huge problem in sales at the moment. Particularly, I see it in American software companies, but it's beginning to pervade just about everywhere. And it's how do people build their pipeline? And it's this wonderful thing called an SDR. Now, SDRs, by their very nature, we've decided that we're cheap, nasty individuals. So what we're going to do is hire an SDR that's just come out of business school or whatever he has, at best, wet behind the ears, very young, doesn't know his ass from his elbow, couldn't know business acumen, couldn't hold a senior conversation. So what do we do? What do we tell these people to say? Our value proposition. So you've got a million wet behind the ears, SDRs, calling CXOs, trotting out a value proposition, and everyone sits there wondering why 86% of it, was it, of CXOs don't like receiving phone calls? Well, because the vast majority are from these wet behind the ear SDRs. Who wants to receive that call? Nobody on God's earth wants to receive that call. What they wouldn't mind receiving a call from is, as you say, somebody a little bit more seasoned, I hate the word, but, you know, more senior, and the, the ludicrous thing is, the ludicrous, sorry, this is my hobby horse, it is my high horse as well. There are thousands, even more now with COVID, but thousands of people that would could and would do that job a whole lot better. They're people of your age and my age, I'm lumping us together there just because we've both got bald heads, but, but I think we probably are both of a certain age that we probably can have conversations. And you know what, you know, I do this and I enjoy having conversations with people. And I think there's a lot of people of our age that have now retired, wouldn't mind working a couple of days a week, could draw on their old networks, they could get through to these people. Use them, just use them. Why why are you so insistent on hiring young people that can't hold conversations when there's older people there that can hold the conversations that you want to build relationships rather than burn them? And you're hiring people that are burning relationships. It's dumb. I can see your point, and absolutely it is valid. That said, I'm a huge fan of the younger generation, and I feel that management and leadership um, have left them out to dry because they don't value that side of the business. They see it as a factory production line. They churn and burn these people. Uh, their training is only ever around products, so that's all they ever get to talk about. 100%. Um, and they never really get any proper coaching. They don't get a proper onboarding process. They don't get proper training. And uh, they certainly don't get taught how to sell. And 
one of the challenges or the major challenge that I see is that most managers are not fit for purpose. 94% of managers in sales are not fit for the job. Only 6% are actually qualified to do it. Um, Now, that's a bloody awful statistic. We did a research study beginning of the year that we released, and that was the finding from over a 1,000 different companies. Now, uh, what we're also very clear about is that most salespeople are transactional and they are product focused. They are not focused on the business and they're not customer focused. And what I'm seeing is, thank God, finally, we're starting to see a trend. It's only small at the moment, but it will take root towards more human to human selling. Instead of seeing the customer as some organic ATM machine that you're meant to be taking cash out of, You need to understand that the person on the other end of the phone is a living, breathing, sentient, emotional human being who is under pressure, who is often feels isolated or exposed. If they're in corporate, they're constantly worrying about when the axe is going to fall. In the COVID era, in 2010, people were talking about 30% reduction in spending. I think uh, in this depression, which is significantly worse, we're going to see a massive bloodletting in the next three to six months because as the government assistance lifts, I mean, one in four British workers today in the end of August 2020 are currently on some form of government support. When that starts getting lifted, then I think lots of salespeople will be made redundant because the first things to go are sales, marketing, recruitment, and training. The four things actually you should be investing in more heavily. It's not such a bad thing that the sales uh, will get a culling, but the problem there is that they will continue, and we're seeing this still, they're continuing to do what they've always done in the belief that things will normalize. They're not. They are never going to normalize. COVID has taken virtualization forward 10 years, so more people will be working from home. McKinsey released the study where 72% of companies were looking at working from home as a permanent option at least part of the week. At least, Um, yeah. And 92% of employees want to work from home in some form or another. Now, the extroverts are the ones that are going to want to go back, the introverts less so. And what this requires is a major shift in management thinking and management skill, because managers should be hiring well which they don't do because they just hire to fill a seat and they hire reactively, then they need to get the best out of their people. That means a proper pre-onboarding, onboarding, training, and then ongoing coaching and accountability. But those things are sadly lacking because the average manager thinks their job is to supervise, whereas in fact, the majority of their time should be involved in coaching and developing their people. 100%. Yeah, to me, management is coaching. Directing, that's different. I accept that. You know, if, you, if you've got that high up, that's not necessarily about coaching. I challenge you on that because um, the sales leaders in the fastest growing tech companies, and I've interviewed dozens of them, all spend at least 50% of their time coaching their people. And that has a trickle down effect because that's part of the culture. And they have coaches. So they spend an awful lot of their time in coaching. Okay, so my view... Seeing as we're on this, I'm not going to disagree with you completely, but my view of the, the highest echelon of sales at the director level, your job is to create as good a situation 
for the buyer to buy your products as is feasibly possible. Your primary thing is to think strategically about how can I make my customer or me, sorry, how can I make us easier to buy from? And that's a strategic thing that, you know, you're not at the cold face, but you need to arm people with coaching, with product, with, you know, that's almost at a higher level. So that to me is the highest bit of sales. You're there to try and make yourself as easy to buy from, as easy to do business with for your customers as you feasibly can. And I think when you're a manager at the cold face, that's not really your job. The manager is to coach your people. That's why I think there's a higher level that should uh, be in there. I agree create. with you 100% that um, at the higher level, CROs and VPs of sales, their job is principally strategy and system design because managers have four functions. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources to do their best work every day and then help clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. Now, yeah. What we see with the best CROs and sales leaders is they speak to customers. They coach their direct reports and their management team. They spend their time ensuring that the systems and processes are in place to enable their salespeople to do their best work. However, I think there is a disconnect. And this is something I'm genuinely concerned about because the sales enablement and marketing automation market has been quite successful at peddling fantastically intelligent solutions. But the problem is they've dehumanized a lot of the uh, engagement. So you look at the marketing automation that many of the corporates are using, they're overburdened with technology and they distance themselves from the human element of marketing and sales. And they're trying to, uh, they're trying for, they're going for efficiency over effectiveness. And hundred percent. That is a massive problem. So let's bring this back to the work that you do in terms of humanizing that initial contact. When you're engaging and you're having those business conversations with people, how do you structure that call in order to ensure that you are being contextually relevant and that you're speaking to them about what matters to them either through the stories that you tell or the questions that you ask that deliver the insight that allows them to realize, actually, what Martin's talking to me about is pertinent, relevant, and timely. Yeah. So um, this is a little bit controversial, but my structure consists of, hello, how are you? This is a cold call, upfront contract. Because if you don't get it, I know that you're Sandler. So, you know, I'm preaching of converted here. I can't tell you how many people start cold calls with, hi, I'm Martin, this is my value. It's fucking rude. Don't be so rude. Absolutely. Um, people don't like it. Yeah, get, get permission. permission. Of course you must have permission. And it's just called a really simple upfront contract. So it's a crucial part of why people are offended by cold calling because the moment they've got it, they just puke up all over them. and Their, their value, oh, just... Get an upfront contract. So then you go into, right, okay, I'm allowed to, you know, give you my pony and trap show. Um, to me, uh, there's somebody called Beck Holland that teaches SDRs, and it's absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah, She's just left you... Chorus and set up on her own uh, ditch yeah. pitch, I think, her company's called. Brilliant. She's awesome. So her training, I flip the script, if you're flip an SDR the out there, you have to just go and watch all five or four or five of those. It's the best five hours training you will ever receive. And it's all there. It's all free. It's all on What's the web. Just find it. It's called Flip the Script. 
And where, where can you find script. that? Now, there's a place called Bravado, is it, that's set up? I think they've got it. If you can't get it anywhere else, just go to Beck on LinkedIn and ask her. Or you can come to me and I'll send it to you because I've got all of them as well. Um, but, you know, um, Beck Holland, B-E-C-C Holland, and she'll help you. She helps everyone. She's brilliant. Get those five hours. Find them somewhere. It's called Flip the Script. Do yourself a favor. Five of the best hours training you'll ever have. So the most crucial bit that she talks about is there should be an outcome and a problem solving it. If you've got a, high, a tight enough ICP, you should have a very bloody good idea. For those of you who don't know what an ICP is. Oh, sorry. Ideal yeah, the ideal customer profile, yeah. So if you've got a tight enough ICP, you should have quite a good idea what irks them. But more to the point, people don't necessarily like to talk about their problems to a cold caller. So start with an outcome. If you want this outcome, the reason you probably haven't got it, we've found, is that people suffer from this problem. Or maybe not. Maybe you want this outcome, but we've tended to find with that outcome, people have this problem. Finally, you may not want either of those. There's another outcome that you want, and this is stopping you. Now, you've got to hit pay dirt on one of those three. and that, That's it. That's your curiosity. It's not going to get you anywhere, but they have to actually engage or you do it in the negative. Look, I dare say you're just about to tell me that absolutely none of those float your boat, aren't you? And you're going to tell me to sling my hook because I only had 30 seconds and I promise you would slam the phone down on me if I did. Well, no, Martin, actually. Funny you should say that. Excellent. Now you take them down the pain funnel. Now, the pain funnel is where you're actually going to add. So people don't like the pain funnel. I can't tell you how many arguments about LinkedIn I have about the pain funnel. The pain funnel is where you're going to make people understand that they do have an issue and there might be another way of looking at it. And without that, you really aren't going to add an awful lot of like value to the conversation. And it's really simple. You home in on what the outcome that they want and the problem. And if you have described that problem well, they're going to talk to you about it. They're going to allow you to ask some really quite basic questions. So what you're after is typically the why, because that's the least used question in sales, when it should be the it's most. the most important um, question. By far the most important question in sales. And it's not used because people think that they should know everything. And so, you know, well, I, I think it's not used well. because um, people are afraid that it can be abrasive. And if you don't soften the why, then yeah. people feel like they're having their fingernails pulled. Um, yeah. You shouldn't be interrogating, it needs to be a conversation. And, and the two worst bits of advice I was ever given were on my first uh, two days in sales back in 1992. And they were, don't ask closed questions and don't ask why questions, which were the worst oh, bits of advice. Oh. They, they helped me back for 17 years. Uh, you ask why questions because unless you understand the cause of their problem, you cannot fix it at its source. And all you're going to be doing is putting lips, uh, putting salve on a, the symptom. Yeah. And you ask directional questions, i.e. closed questions, because they help you narrow the decision to the point where you can get a yes or no, do they invite you in or not? But the problem yeah. is that most salespeople and most managers have no idea how to sell past the no. And that's why people are given the terrible advice, don't ask closed questions. But if you know how to sell past no, and in fact, 80, over 80% of my income comes after someone has told me no. 
Right. Now, if you can get to that point, then what you'll end up with is a much higher conversion rate. It means that you have to do one-fifth of the work in prospecting. So key bit of advice is get some help in learning how to sell past no. Then you can increase your productivity by 400%. And to me, it, you know, it's that why question. That's one of the best ways of getting down to the nitty-gritty of what it is. Why are they saying no to you? What is it about this question, this issue that you, you, know, you don't want to address? Da, da, da. You, know, you can get away with this or you can do it, but people talk about adding value. And to me, the biggest value I can add in any initial cold call, and that's what I do for a living, so that's my area of expertise, is to take people down that pain funnel. And when people start looking at a problem and they start talking about it, and you are able, just as you say, you're not going to go, why, why, why? Couldn't you tell me a bit more about that? Look, just homing in on that for a second, can we expand on, you know, what was the implication? You know, you're not asking why, but you are. Um, yeah. And there are ways of doing it um, that actually enable people and they want to open up to you. So, you know, that's part of my structure. That's why um, the I, Catholic Church has been so successful for the last <laughs> two years. Confession. Confession. If, if you're a good yes. salesperson, it's like taking someone to the confessional so they can unburden themselves. Because many of these senior executives and many of these people who are in pain feel isolated. They feel exposed. They feel at risk. And they want to be heard. They want to be understood. They want someone else to feel what they are feeling. That, yeah. that business empathy is really important. So you made reference to this earlier. You asked me a question earlier about, or you sent me a question about blind spots. The end of the pain funnel my biggest blind spot in sales for years and years, you said yours was closed questions and not asking why. Mine was understanding the importance of emotion, the understanding the person and what this means to this individual you are speaking to. It took me years to figure out that people don't buy business solutions for the good of their company they actually buy solutions for the good of themselves. Yeah. So you need to ask a question, how does this make you feel? You've got to, at some point, when at the end of the pain funnel, you've got to turn it into emotion. You've got to get to the nub of how they genuinely feel. As you say, there are a lot of people in senior positions that, you know, they want to go to confessional, they want to do this. Nobody ever asked them. You know, they go home, they talk to their, their wife, the wife's sick of it, their dog's fucking sick of them. But here's a salesperson that sounds quite intelligent, asking them reasonably good questions and actually saying at the end of it, mate, you know, this all sounds quite, you know, how does it make you feel? Okay, so there, they open up again. That's is where the goodness is. So my blind spot for years and years wasn't so much closed questions. It was actually understanding the importance of getting to the emotion, of understanding that you're selling to a person and this person is far from perfect, they're either greedy bastards, because we all buy for only one of two reasons. There's only two primary motivators, greed and fear. So you've got to understand whether that person is buying because they're a greedy bastard, they want to take over the company, if this is a success, or they are buying out of fear, i.e. I'm about to lose my job if I don't do this. And there's only two primary motivators of buying anything. I need to understand that primary motivator. I need to get that emotion. The only way to do it is to ask, how does this make you feel? And if they're bursting their chest, ooh, ooh, this is good. Right, you're a greedy bastard. Okay, well, that allows me to... Sorry, but, you know, 
<laughs> but it does allow you to couch the rest of your sale in what this could do for you or in what happens if you don't. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of I, I, I don't disagree but... that those are key drivers. I think there's also a lot of people who've reached and, and are more grounded actually take their responsibility exceptionally seriously. And they recognize that the impact of these decisions can have a massive, either negative or positive effect uh, on their customers, on their employees. And they feel a lot of pressure there to contribute. And I, I would add that as well, which is, you know, how, how can they make a positive contribution? How can they go towards that better future? And I think historically, I've always, I, I've for a long time just focused, you know, no pain, no sale. And I agree that they ha- there has to be something that they are motivated to move away from. But one of the things that I learned is that you never leave your prospect in pain. And you, you alluded to it right at the beginning, which is that you need to lead with the outcome. And, and they're looking for that better future. If they don't have that better future, in mind, then they will associate your conversation with their pain. So my strong recommendation is that you also get very good at telling the hero's journey story from your customer's perspective. You are never the hero. Your company, your products are never the hero. Never make it about them. Make it about your customers who are in a similar situation to them. And they went through this, you know, they've hit this pit of despair or they've hit a roadblock and they're stuck and they've thrown money and time and resources at trying to solve the problem and it's not gone away. And you need to be their guide. So you have to be Yoda, you have to be Sherpa Tensing, uh, you have to be Obi-Wan Kenobi to their Luke Skywalker or Edmund Hillary. And you've got to make sure that you help them see that better future through that story. And again, what we forget is that for the last 250,000 years, our ancestors have been sat around campfires telling stories about the great emu in the sky and about Zeus and about mythical beings. And, you know, this hero's journey, the Viking sagas and and, all of this stuff, this is what drives us into that emotional place. And it allows us to create the necessary emotional attachment to get people to be galvanized, to make change, to make a decision, to change what they're doing. So you said don't leave a uh, don't leave a prospect in pain, hundred percent. So the reason I ask that emotional question, how do they feel about it, is that I've always got uh, the the next part of my structure is to tell the success story, and that success story is always done in one of two ways. I'm never the hero. It must be my customer that was in the exact same situation as you. They were almost, they wanted to get a new job or be the CEO. So I tell them the story about how we managed to do that. Or they were just like you. They were actually really in a right two and eight. They didn't understand what they could do about their issues and problems. You know, they were really feeling quite fearful, a little bit like you. Now let me tell you about how they were just like you. And this is where they are now. And so the reason I ask that question is that I've got a success story as the next part of my structure. And they should realize that actually with my help, if they identify with the hero of my story that I'm about to tell them that did feel just like you really miserable or did feel like you wanted to take over the world, can you identify with them? Yes, I can. Well, I know you're going to because you've just told me exactly how you feel about your issue. So it's up to me to then tell the right story. So that's how you can make them feel, should we say, not quite as down in the dumps or you know, make them feel that you are the person that can make them the next CEO um, I, 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 with that story. 
okay, tell me something. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Uh, look, this damn virus, there's no two ways about it. It's not easy. People are, I'm finding very much that people want to hold on to what they've got, not really expand out. Um, they are definitely bunkering down. So in my line of work, trying to persuade me, people to take meetings about potential ways in which we can help them, unless I'm actually selling something that is directly relevant and really can help them with COVID, this is bizarre, but I'm going to mention it. I had a bit of a contract with a commercial cleaning business, a very large commercial cleaning business, but they wanted me to try and get business. Um, I would phone CEOs of ASX 100 companies and literally talk to them about how they could be seen as an absolute hero just because they, by changing their commercial cleaning. If you can relate it and you can tell somebody about how they can appear to be better in their employees' eyes, just by changing their commercial cleaning business, yep. it still resonates. It's well, that's still, strategic that and resonates. also timely. Yeah. So again, I, I think what we are seeing is that decision-making cycles and purchase decisions are definitely being made uh, for things that are relevant and contextually appropriate to the current time. Things that are nice to have are definitely being put off They've got, unless um, you can find a way to make it strategic. Yes, yeah, 100%. Yeah, those um, nice-to-haves have gone. If you can strategically align this to an outcome that is directly relevant to what's going on at the moment, um, which is saving money for most CEOs, let's be honest, if you can clearly show them a way to do that, um, or some of the most surprising people I come across, they're not into saving money at all. A quick question, a quick story for you. I don't know whether you want to include this or not, but Manny's DJs. Down in Melbourne, they've got a couple of stores down there, Manny's DJs. I was calling them up just thinking, God, mate, you must have a nightmare at the moment. There's no, no nightclubs, no nothing, no DJs doing anything. And he's going, mate, I don't want more people viewing my website. I'd, I'd take my website down. And I'm, I'd, well, failure to compute, what do you mean? He said, everyone's just got WorkKeeper. So they got three grand. These kids have got three grand dumped in their bin. Now they're holed up in Melbourne for six weeks at a time. Nobody wants to learn a, an instrument, not of their age. They all fancy themselves as DJs. Mate, I'm selling more DJ decks than you know what to do with. <laughs> Don't talk to me about increasing the eyeballs on my website. I want logistics and how to get more of these turntables out of China. Thank you very much indeed. So... Don't judge every book by its cover. There are people doing seriously well, and you don't know until you ask the questions. The lockdown has been great for a lot of businesses. I mean, my clients, we were prepared for this because we had the fundamentals in place. And I'm routinely working with clients. In fact, virtually every one of them is between 140 and 220% of their quota at the moment. And I've got some that year on year are up to three or 4,000% up on where they were last year. So it's not like no one's spending money. They're just not spending money with you because you haven't prepared. Tell me this, if you had a golden ticket and you could whisper in the idiot Martin's ear, age 23, what choice bit of advice would you give him? Oh dear. So, uh, well, okay. So I did have a golden ticket when I was 23. I worked for ICAP. I was a money broker and we got paid in gold ingots. <laughs> so it's almost absolutely true. It was a tax dodge that was completely legal, but it was a tax dodge if you got actual paid in gold ingots. So <laughs> like an idiot 23-year-old, I actually wanted to see my ingot to see what it actually looked like and everyone thought I was mad. But so I did get paid in gold ingots. It was a golden ticket, if you like. And you know what? 
I turned into an absolute ass of an individual. I, I just was an arrogant city wanker. There's no ifs, buts, or maybes about it. I was so my biggest bit of advice back there is stay humble and show humility um, because I didn't and I regret it. The way I treated people wasn't as perhaps I should have. But more recently, People talk about salespeople being curious. Um, I buy that. You know, I do like people being curious, but I prefer humility. I prefer to know that I don't know everything and I'm curious enough or I've got enough humility to simply ask questions. So um, my biggest bit of advice for a 23-year-old, apart from, you know, stop being such an ass, would be to remain as human. Treat life or treat people with humility. Because actually, it, it's an important lesson. And to me, you can get a bit too big for your shoes. And you can lose your interest in things and people. And that's where it all starts going downhill. If you think you know it all, remain curious, remain interested, have some humility about it, would be my 20. That would be that, my that's advice. really good advice. So tell me this. What are you reading, watching, listening to that's really influencing you at the moment? So I have a confession. I've pretty much given up reading sales books, which is shock horror. I, well, I, I, I just, they're all the bloody same. And they're all peddled by people. So I've given up really because I've got sick of reading too many people with too many agendas and everyone seems to write a book. And you know what? I'm wasting too much time reading nonsense that I know doesn't work. So actually, as shocking as this may seem to most salespeople who say, read, 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 I don't read sales books anymore. I used to quite voraciously and I've given up. So what do I read instead to influence me? I did and still do to a large extent follow certain people on LinkedIn. Once you figure out who the good people are, and trust me, there's a load of rubbish people that just peddle nonsense. But once you figure out there's a few good people on LinkedIn, I think it is the single greatest university education that salespeople have not got, but you can find it. If you follow the right people on LinkedIn, you take their advice, you've got to go through the wheat and the chaff. If only I could hold your hand as a young 23-year-old and point you to certain people and say what he says, she says, follow that. By the way, what that idiot says, ignore because it's all there on LinkedIn, if you know who to look after and where to find it. To me, it's been probably the greatest education of sales. I wish I had it when I was younger, but you can get tripped up. You really can get tripped up by listening to the wrong people. So that's what I read. Um, I read more of LinkedIn than anything else. Oh, and the other thing, I've just started listening to podcasts, the Peter Crouch podcast. It's not what you need to know, but uh, I love it. (laughs) Excellent. How can people get hold of you, Martin? Martin.Stevens, that's S-T-E-V-E-N-S, at pipelinedoctors.com. Excellent. And you're on LinkedIn as well. Ah, yeah, of course I'm on LinkedIn. Yes. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest, then please get in touch at marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you think there's someone that you'd like me to interview or you'd be a good guest, then please get in touch and either connect us on LinkedIn or via email. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.